0: Slightly sad to say that after today, we will be pausing in Genesis. From here, we'll have a few folks come and preach. Next week, another student from the pastor's college, and then a dear pastor friend of ours who pastors up in uh, Piqua, Ohio. We're looking forward to, th- to them joining us. We're also looking forward to going through Proverbs a bit this summer before we jump back into Genesis in the fall. But for now, we are ending Genesis on maybe the strangest note that we could end on. This story about Noah getting drunk. And and though the story may sound strange, we're actually in a natural pause in the grander story of Genesis. That's why we'll be able to hopefully pick things back up in the fall. Um, these next, so uh, Before we jump in, I just want to ask the question, where is this story taking us? We've gone through some of the most significant movements of the entire world, the creation of the world, the flood of the world, and God, what he's trying to communicate to us and to Israel through his word. So where's where's the story taking us? These next three chapters, so the end of 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, are a part of a major transition from the past 10 generations, which these generations were long generations, and it's switching to the next 10 generations, so kind of a chunk there. So at the, at the end of this passage, we find out that Noah dies, just like all the other ancestors who live out the consequences of Adam's sin. In fact, if, if you're just reading the story of Genesis, you're hoping that All of that would end with the flood. All the mess would end with the flood. Sin, corruption, death, but all still remain in this story. Most people take this portion of of Genesis, this chapter, to be primarily about Noah and how horrible it was that he got drunk. It was wrong, and we'll see why in a moment. But in reality, the story of Genesis has shifted attention from Noah to his son's So as we read together, the first question we need to ask is, why are his sons so important? So look at chapter, or verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So, why are Noah's sons so important? We are introduced to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And what does it say about them? It says, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these people, these three people, these three families, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So this story sets the trajectory for entire peoples and nations. In fact, the way these sons are ordered, are, are tell, it's telling us something. Um, Japheth, as you read in the next couple chapters, is the oldest. Ham is the youngest. And Shem is in between, which typically sons are ordered by age. So why, why so jumbled? Because the author is drawing our attention somewhere. Shem is going to be the focal point. But Ham is also actually significant in this story as well, even more so than their oldest brother, Japheth. In fact, we get the only person we get a little bit more detail about to help us is Ham. Ham, he was the father of Canaan. Keep that in mind. Ham equals the father of Canaan. The next question we need to ask is, what happened here? What in the world happened in this instance? In the previous verses, the author Moses told us of God's covenant with all creation, vowing never to flood the earth again, and how he accepted Noah's sacrifice after the flood. And so now he introduces these sons by focusing on One particular event. Of all that probably happened from Noah getting off the ark, them setting up shop, starting into this new world, the author focuses on this one story, which in God's sovereign plan very closely mirrors the fall in Genesis 3 and also Cain's actions in Genesis 4. So think of this as the fall of man 2.0. I'll read it again. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But before we talk about the things that are going wrong here, did you catch any of the similarities from the fall of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, and then the murder of Abel by Cain? God is purposefully building this association, which we saw a lot of that last week, between Noah and Adam. He's tying them together. Here, here, Noah is a man of the soil who tends the ground much like Adam did. Then you also see the misuse of fruit as a minor connecting point between uh, where where the things started to go wrong. Then you also see the nakedness is what carries this theme of shame. Adam and Eve saw that they were naked after eating the fruit and they ran and hid similarly uh, Noah is naked in his tent we also see how his nakedness was covered just as God clothed Adam and Eve and then in a minute we'll see this ending in a curse much like Genesis 3 one thing the story is communicating to us is that sin is still the real issue the flood was meant to wipe out the current wickedness of mankind to purge and cleanse the earth but God is showing Noah and his family and the Israelite readers that sin resides in the heart. It hasn't gone anywhere up to this point. But what actually happened? What was Ham's offense? Noah was the one who got drunk. Isn't this just an instance of him kind of getting his just desserts? And his other two sons just trying to make up for their brother's indiscretion. What did Ham do that was so awful that Noah takes it out on Ham's innocent son, Canaan? This seems so kind of twisted up. And this passage has been interpreted multiple ways, all of which are trying to communicate the atrocity of Ham's sin against Noah. Because if you just read it at a glance, something must have been really wrong for Noah to to realize what, what has happened and then to direct his curse at Ham's youngest son, Canaan. There has to be a reason for that. So all of, all of these various interpretations have their reasons based on other hints, good hints in Scripture. For example, some see simply this as, as, as a highly dishonorable act of Ham looking at his naked father and shaming Noah before Ham's other brothers. Some assume that Ham actually acted in an exceedingly foul way by either molesting his father as an immoral act or castrating his father as a power grab. Again, that, that sounds absurd to us, but those interpretations are held by people attempting to make sense of why this is such a significant part of this unfolding story. It gets complicated when what is being said here is in the form of a Hebrew idiom, like a, like a figure of speech. Like if I said heads up at a baseball game, uh, I would not just be saying point your head up. It would be, hey, look to see if you find out where this ball is in the air so it doesn't land on top of your own head. So it's, it's something like that. There's an idiom, which is a figure of speech that contains more in there, uh, just like saying heads up. It's not, it's not just at face value there. Um, The short of it is, I don't, I don't think Ham's offense is any of those that I just previously mentioned, and it's not at all because I have some special insight or am uber creative. Rather, lots of people smarter than me have good reasons and arguments for all of those things. But there's one that seems to make the most sense of the language that Scripture uses. We're using, wanting to use our Bible to help uh, other parts of our Bible to help interpret this part of our Bible, and I think there's a way to do that. If you want to look into this more, most of the conclusions I'm coming to are from uh, our recently deceased brother, Old Testament scholar, Michael Heiser, who I've come to respect in in multiple, multiple areas. The logic that I'll follow is his, and the reason why I'm sharing it with you is not to say, hey, I think this guy has the best view, let's put that one forward. It's more so because I think it helps us understand this portion of our Bibles and also other portions of our Bibles so that we can then apply it think it is faithful to to what is already here in scripture so let's dig into this because we we have to know the significance of what's happening here in order to understand what's unfolding so the text tells us that Noah was incapacitated by his own abuse of wine there's nothing wrong with planting a vineyard necessarily this this text doesn't seem to say that um and, and innovating and being able to make wine. If anything, it tells us that this new creation is fruitful. No one was able to cultivate the land. He was able to plant a vineyard and enjoy its fruits. The fault lies, though, in, in uh, excess and, ex- and ultimately exposing himself, which leads to the rest of the story. He would have been better off if he was sober. Then it tells us that Ham the father of Canaan. Remember, Ham is the father of Canaan. He saw his father's nakedness and then proceeded to tell his brothers. Now, if we just take that literally, in, in that ancient Near East culture would, would have been reason enough for punishment. Uh, so shameful to, to mock or to, to uh, shame, purposely shame your father, uh, especially to, you know, to these other brothers. So even if it was an accident, bragging to his brothers and shaming Noah, who are grown, Noah's, Noah's other sons, who are grown men at this point, by the way, would be humiliating and, and shameful. But that leaves questions. Is that all that's going on? This is where that, that idiom comes in. When, when the Old Testament uses the term seeing nakedness, it is a figure of speech. It is an idiom that is shorthand for something more than just seeing Listen to what Leviticus 20 says. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace. And they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness and he shall bear his iniquity. So this is is more than some accidental thing. Rather the phrase seeing someone's nakedness is equal to uncovering that person's nakedness. But the consequences of being cut off from their people are so high, it seemed like it wouldn't match, but the consequences are so high because scripture shows consistently that the idiom of seeing or uncovering involves illicit things. It involves un- un sanctioned sexual relations. So there are lots of examples of this, but Leviticus 18 gives this huge list of who it would be detestable and dishonoring to God's design for the men of Israel to engage with sexually, or in other words, uncover their nakedness. For example, close relatives, sisters, daughters, etc. But most notably in Leviticus 18.6, now, we're talking Leviticus. Obviously, this is written after Noah's time, but it's helpful that it was also written by Moses. So same author, and the point here is to show that Moses is using the same language in both cases. Uh, Leviticus 18, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. So in, if, if we can track with that, in this, in this patriarchal culture, the wife was so associated with the man that, that uncovering his nakedness is a euphemism for laying with his wife. In other words, uncovering the nakedness of one's father isn't simply looking at him or participating in some homosexual act. It is the perhaps even worse offense or subversively and treasonously offense of laying with one's mother. That's what's so wrong ultimately, about what Ham has done here. This is no mere accidental seeing. This is no mere stumbling upon Noah's nakedness and then joking about it. This isn't even an opportunistic attempt at, like, sticking it to the man and putting Noah to shame. Listen, while, while Noah, if you can imagine, Noah is, is incapacitated by his wine. That's, that's kind of where the, the fault starts. Um, and then Ham, with, with wicked intentions, has purposefully taken advantage of his mother. Why? Why in the world is this happening? So that, as the youngest son, Ham, he can have a son by her in order to claim power in the family and thus have authority over the coming generations that would spring from these three sons of Noah. Ham's offense is wicked and horrifyingly dishonoring to a generally righteous man, Noah. But more than that, it is a spit in the face of the authority of Yahweh God, Noah's God, king of creation and of his good designs. Ham was not content with his place in the family. He was embittered. Much like Cain before him, much like Jacob after him who wanted his father's birthright, his actions were wicked and detestable, confirmed and shown by him arrogantly telling his brothers what he has done. Which is why Shem and Japheth's actions stand in stark contrast here. They heard from Ham's own brazen mouth what he had done. And they, in honor of their father, go walking backwards with a garment and cover their father's nakedness, namely their mother who has been mistreated at Ham's hand. Truly, that this is a low point in Genesis. The sin of man is still alive and well, and has manifested itself in ways previously unspoken of in the book of Genesis. And there must be consequences to that sin, which helps us answer the question, why curses and blessings that come from this instance? Verse 24 says, When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. And let Canaan be Shem's servant. And let Canaan be Japheth's servant. Presumably, and I know we're not just trying to creatively fill in the gaps here, trying to make sense of what the text is telling us, Presumably, Noah's wife wasn't mute. It makes, it makes sense then how Noah would find out what happened at some point after he woke up from his drunkenness and why he would later commend these two sons for doing exactly the opposite of wicked Ham. Now, I don't, don't want to make too much of this, but it does make sense here if, if Noah going to— f- him, him finding out and him cursing doesn't happen quite immediately— Again, don't want to make too much of that, but it's, it's possible because a lot of these Genesis stories are condensed down chronologically. Um, it may be that Noah, Noah wakes up, finds out, and boom, curses Ham's son. But it seems very, very random. Um, but if it wasn't immediate, then it makes a lot of sense. If Noah's wife is found to be pregnant by Ham and she gives birth to a son, the youngest son of Ham, whose name is Canaan, as a result of Ham's treachery, that seems to be the clearest way to answer the question, why Canaan? Isn't he innocent? Yes, but he is the product of a wicked power grab to try and subvert and interrupt the family line of these three sons of Noah. And rather than accomplish maybe what what Ham was hoping would happen, what he was trying to accomplish with Canaan being kind of the new king on the hill of the family. Instead, Noah says, Cursed be Canaan. Cursed! A servant of servants shall he be to his brother. He will not be the leader of this family. He will be the lowest of servants, not the ruler. His descendants will serve the descendants of Shem and Japheth who acted honorably. Now, quick side note. These particular verses, Canaan kind of being placed underneath Shem and Japheth, have been used in horrible ways to justify ethnic slavery and racism. But this is not some how-to on race Relations. It's not a justified proof text to say that one group of people is inferior to the next. It's a complete twisting of the word of God and not to mention missing the point entirely. This isn't about a race divide. This is about a seed divide. We saw some similarities with the fall in Genesis 3, but here we also see similarities with Genesis 4 and the story of Cain and Abel. It was there where we saw this divide form between the righteous line who would carry the promised seed of the woman and the subversive and wicked line who acted as the seed of the serpent. The same proves true here. There was so much promise with this new Adam, Noah, who was prophesied by his father to bring relief and rest from the toil under the curse. But just one generation down from him, just like how things keep snowballing after Adam, we see that the turmoil of these seeds are still there. And the serpent crusher has yet to be found. Even 10 generations after Adam, where is he? This is where the significance of this story lies. Because though Noah is doing the speaking here, he's doing the cursing and the blessing, he is acting as the prophetic mouthpiece of God. Yes, he's the one who curses Ham's son Canaan. But as we'll see in the next chapter, God is the one who carries that curse along. He makes it happen, along with Noah's blessing, into human history. And he makes them reality. Just like in the Garden of Eden, God is reiterating that sin against God, no matter whether disobedience in eating forbidden fruit, whether murder of a brother or shaming of a father by taking advantage of a mother, all are worthy of being cursed and condemned. And he shows that by the fact that Ham's sin is going to infect the rest of his heritage, much like Adam and Eve. In fact, Ham's sin will result in the most idolatrous, wicked, And immoral people that the nation of Israel will ever know, the Canaanites. They would follow in Ham's footsteps both by their own idolatry and God's sovereign curse. They would be conquered by Shem's descendants in fulfillment of that curse. In addition to that, we'll we'll come to this when we get to chapter 10 in the fall, but just to go out ahead of us a little bit, It's not just Canaan. Ham's sin will give way. Remember that that the first verse of this section says, from these men, from these people, the whole nation, the peoples of the earth were dispersed. So we're talking about entire peoples. From Ham's personal and individual sin will give way, it will give way to the greatest enemies of God's people in all of Scripture which we'll see in chapter 10. One of his sons is named Egypt. And his grandson was Nimrod, the founder of two cities. Babel, later to become the mighty nation of Babylon, who would enslave Israel. And then Nineveh, the capital city of ruthless Assyria. All from wicked ham. All opposed to God. All proof that the seed of the serpent remains even after the flood. Which means there still must be a promise of a serpent crusher somewhere. So look at verse 26. Noah also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. This is the first time that God is mentioned in this passage, in this section, as God blesses Shem and Japheth based on their honorable actions toward Noah. In both cases, Canaan and his descendants are going to serve Shem and Japheth's descendants. We actually see this play out when Israel takes over the land of Canaan, the promised land. And some of the Canaanites wind up being put to forced labor by the Israelites. Joshua 16. In a sense, God is reiterating Canaan's curse in the blessing of Shem and Japheth. Let me just say that Japheth is is a beneficiary here, but he's kind of a foil for Shem. Shem is who the focus is on. Look how you can see it straight away, the difference in the blessing. But first, Noah blesses Yahweh, the true God. By blessing, it means that Noah is expressing his adoration of God. Blessed be the Lord. This is why I think Noah's drunkenness was a bit of an anomaly. He's not, he's not perfect, but he's, he still fears God. He gives, he, he's giving praise and adoration to Yahweh, the one true God. But he gives God an interesting title here, or if you think about it, God himself is giving himself an interesting title here. Noah calls him the God of Shem. This is the first time that that's mentioned, that, that, uh, that God is called the God of anybody, the God of somebody specific. But it seems like Noah's, through Noah's blessing, God is attaching himself or associating himself with a particular person. But as we know from the first verse of this passage, not just an individual, Shem, but Shem as a stand-in for an entire people. God is attaching himself to Shem. If Ham's descendants are important for their wickedness, Shem's descendants are important for their relationship to Yahweh. So this, this takes the entire story and the wickedness and all the crazy antics and covering and uncovering And it quickly zooms in on Shem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Hey, readers of Genesis, don't miss this. Don't sleep on the one who is called the God of Shem. Pay attention who comes from Shem. I mentioned it earlier that chapter 5, we saw 10 generations from Adam to Noah. Noah. We've come to the end of that 10 generations, but in chapter 12, we get 10 more generations. Who are the markers of those generations? It starts with Shem, and it ends with who? Abraham. Because from this line is going to come Abraham, who will receive yet another blessing from God and will carry the hope of the reversal of this fall of Adam and this fall of Ham for the entire world. Through his family. The God of Shem will become, another title, the God of Abraham. Who will become the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who then becomes the God of Israel and the God of David. And as this story progresses, God, through righteous Shem's line, introduces us to somebody in Matthew. Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Friends, Shem is no hero in this story. The hero of this story is the God of Shem, who will save his people from their sins through one of Shem's distant descendants. So can we not... Just marvel at how carefully God made sure that Jesus would come to us. Out from the spring of the vile and atrocious actions of Ham comes the hope of the world. And I'm trying hard not to repeat last week's sermon, but the text of Genesis has this repeat emphasis. The God of this world, the God over all human history, will bring his serpent-crushing son by continuing to sovereignly bless particular people who will carry the seed into the next generation until, at the right time, that seed would be born to save the world from sin and death. Again, church, this is not, it's not, not even a story about Noah's drunkenness, not, not even primarily about Shem's offense, not primarily about how a righteous man, Shem, swooped in and saved the day, in fact, his, his noble actions were accompanied with Japheth's noble actions. And yet, the sovereign God chooses Shem over Japheth. He still blesses him, but he does not associate himself with Japheth. This story is about the God of Shem who, out of his goodness and mercy in the face of, a, of just this egregious act that confirms the hopelessness of humanity, he chose to bless Shem with something far more wonderful than Shem's own actions warranted. To be the one who would carry forward the seed of the woman is purely a mark of the generosity of God and his commitment to hold to his promise to Adam and Eve. At this point, I hope, I hope we can agree that if we come to this the end of this text, we can't say, how this must be something about not being like him just be like the other two we've missed something huge that something huge is this any hope of being rescued from the cycle of our own wickedness and the curses of god rests where upon the mercy of god towards sinners through jesus christ any hope of us being rescued from our cycle of wickedness and the curses of God rests upon the mercy of God towards sinners through Jesus Christ. Friends, this this incident happened so long ago, but it shows that every one of us deserve what happened to him and his family line. We deserve to be cursed for our wickedness, condemned just as God cursed Canaan. But just as God cursed Canaan and blessed Shem, Paul reminds us of what God says to similar siblings, Jacob and Esau. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion On whom I have compassion. So, what's the deciding factor on whether or not God will have mercy? So, then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You are here because of God's mercy. You know that there is a Savior named Jesus because of God's mercy. Church, we are at the mercy of God's mercy. And that is the best place we could be. Has he not shown it to us? Has he not shown us mercy? Has he not been gracious to you and I? He has. Because from before the foundation of the world, he made certain that Jesus would come through the line of Shem. The same Jesus who he planned before the foundation of the world to come and crush that wicked serpent, Satan. And in the process of doing so, Jesus would give his life as a sacrifice for yours and for mine. He would give himself as a sacrifice for our ham-like sins. So we can sit here in this church body having known the mercy God has shown us in Jesus Christ and we can say, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, my God, the God of my salvation. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. At face value, this text has little to do with maybe what might be on your mind in the forefront. The current work issue, the practical marriage tip that you're hoping for, the words of wisdom for students, how to suffer through illness. But it does get at the bedrock of what's underneath all of those things, which is what you as a Christian think about God. And exactly how merciful he has been to you. I, I would venture to say that everyone here is content saying, God is merciful. We know that. He has been merciful to us because he has taken our guilt from us and given us eternal life rather than the punishment we deserve. But I would, I would charge and challenge you how merciful is God to you? Is he not infinitely merciful? Has he not been so gracious to you? Because it's easy to see him in this story and think, I'm glad that I'm not in the cursed camp here. But the truth is, is that we were all once in that camp until God showed us mercy, until Jesus hung on his cross as a cursed man in our place. We were, as Ephesians described, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, once cursed like Ham, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The rest of our world continues in following in the footsteps of the wicked seed of Ham and has rejected Christ. And such were we, and such were we, until God had mercy on us. That is the difference maker. God showing us mercy that should ignite our worship of God who loved us, who gave himself, who came for us, who will come again for us, who had mercy on those who deserve no mercy, who continues to have mercy on us when we fail again and again and come to him and, and When we ask for forgiveness, he grants it. And it should color also how we look at those in our world, whether that boss or coworker or client causing the work issue, or your kids who you love and want to see grow, or this wicked world we're in that is so combative and wrong and lost. This God, our God, is the one who can take anyone from One side of that seed divide and move them into the kingdom of his his beloved son. We, in this room, being prime examples. Friends, has he not won our trust? Has he not won our affection and adoration? Has he not proven himself, even in just these few months in Genesis, over and over again, that, that he is the true God, the creator king, who has gone to such great lengths to ensure that his promise would come true and that his mercy would be shown in Christ. We sang it earlier, there, there is no one like our God. If, we, if that is, if, if it's become at all stale, I want to remind you, there is no one like the God that you believe in, like the God of this Bible. There is no one like him there is no one who is so lavishly merciful to sinners the one who can promise and bring it to pass and who has promised and will bring it to pass and the goal of this strange story at the end of Genesis 9 is to awaken us to thank God that we are no longer cursed but we are under his blessing Because we have been saved by Jesus Christ, who was the blessed seed of Shem.